Hey y'all, this is May. Now I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I will be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a female murder from 1976. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In April 1976, the Apple Computer Company was established by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. That same year, a tsunami hit the Philippines, killing 5,000 people. Another thing that happened in 1976 was a woman who believed all her problems would go away if her parents were dead. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Webster's Dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. Well, you know something? I think you guys are two metals. Gold metals. Michael Scott. What greater thing is there for two human souls than to feel that they are joined for life, to strengthen each other in all labor, to rest on each other in all sorrow? to minister to each other in silent, unspeakable memories at the moment of the last parting. George Eliot. One funny, the other more serious, but both were how Paula Cantrell and Scott Dillard, both 20, felt on June 27, 1970, at St. John's Methodist Church. Paula was dressed in a gown of Pyrdesum and Chantilly lace. The empire bodice, assented with seed pearls, was designed with scalped neckline. The train was decorated with lace and pearls. Her veil was four-tiered with seed pearls and bridal sequins. She carried a bouquet of white roses, white orchid, and bridal wreath greenery. She carried the wedding band belonging to her grandmother and wore a necklace of the groom's great-grandmother. Paula walked down the aisle. Her father, Paul, gave her away, and she was looking forward to a future ahead with her husband. It was a happy day all around. Parents were excited, and all felt this would be a start of a great marriage. Scott became a student at Lamar Tech, and Paula got a job at that college. This is when she met Vernon McManus, who was an assistant football coach for the college in 1970. In both high school and college, McManus was a star football player. He graduated high school in 1961 and went on to Lamar University to play football, where he received all Southland Conference honors in 1964 and 1965, and was also named a little All-American linebacker before graduating in 1966. He then went on to coach at MacArthur High School in San Antonio, Texas before eventually joining the Lamar University coaching staff in 1970. Paula and McManus had no idea that this work friendship would ruin both their lives just six years later. 
Paula and Scott didn't work out, and they got divorced. And Paula soon fell in love again and married a man, Herbie Derese, on May 25, 1973. Their wedding day did not have the same happy vibes as her first wedding day, as her parents, Paul and Mary Contrell, did not like this man. Paula was also pregnant with Herbie's son at the time. So when the couple later separated, two years later, on May 26, 1975, Paula and her son, Chad, moved in with her parents. They were excited to have their only child away from this man and to have more time with their grandson. But conflict started to arise when Paula started expressing a desire to get back together with Herbie. This conflict escalated when her father, Paul, threatened to go to court to fight for legal custody of Chad if she did reconcile with Herbie. Around this time, in January 1976, Vernon McManus reached out to Paula to ask her out. He had recently resigned from his post at Lamar University and started up a plywood brokerage firm in Baytown. Paula said no to the date as McManus was married, but the two did start talking on the phone more frequently, and after a huge fight with her parents about Herbie, she agreed to go to lunch with McManus, where they discussed the problem she was having with her parents. Their conversation took a dark turn when Paula said she would do anything to be free of her parents. McManus responded that he knew of a way that they could be taken care of so that she would not have to worry about that again. He also asked her about how much insurance Herbie had and whether she wanted him killed. But Paula responded that she did not want Herbie killed. That February, Paula took out a 1500 loan that McManus co-signed and after about two weeks, they met up again for lunch. This is when McManus told her that things had been taken care of so that she would not have to worry about it again, that he knew some people who killed people for money, and that there had already been a payment made to have her parents killed. He would do this in exchange for one-third of the proceeds of her parents' estate and life insurance. The two maintained their communication, and in April 1976, Paula started working for him as a secretary. Easter weekend was approaching, and Paul and Mary had plans to meet some friends in Austin to play golf. Lately, McManus and Paula had been discussing something called insurance double indemnity. This is a clause or provision in a life insurance or accident policy where the company agrees to pay the stated multiple, double, triple, of the face amount in the contract in cases of death caused by accidental means. The two started floating ideas of how to make the deaths look accidental. And McManus, knowing Paula's parents would be going out of town for Easter, believed this to be the right circumstance for the accidental deaths to occur. Paula relayed her parents' hotel information to McManus and started to realize something was really going to happen to her parents. But she did not warn them as she didn't feel she could tell them about the situation she had gotten herself into. She did, however, call her parents several times that weekend, and they did return home safely from this trip.
By May, Paula was asked to borrow money from a credit union so McManus could pay the person who he was wanting to hire to kill her parents. But something always came up and the hitman was unable to follow through as quickly as McManus hoped. By June, McManus was drinking heavily and was frequently gone from his business and in desperate need for money. Frustrated, he told Paula he should not have counted upon anyone else to do the killings, that he should have done them himself. He said that he would walk up to the Cantrell house, act like he was going to talk about business, and kill them himself. Friday, July 23rd, McManus called Paula and told her, the man is in the area, and she needed to leave the house. She did, but nothing happened. The next day, July 24, 1976, Paula called and told McManus she was going on a date that evening. Her son would be at his father's, and her parents would be home. When she returned home in the early morning hours of July 25th, she found both her parents' bodies in the den. She ran screaming to a neighbor's house and called the police. Paula and McManus continued communicating over the next couple of days. This is what he detailed, how the murders went down. I rented a car from the Houston airport and picked up two men. We then proceeded to the control house. We all wore gloves. I was forced to be present during the murders. The men had used a pipe to hit the victims in the head, and then they had cut their throats. We then all started to ransack the house but a car pulled up across the street, so we left. McManus then made a comment that if one hair was found in the bodies of the deceased, he would be dead. So you better keep your mouth shut and not crack. But, just a few days later, and just one day after her parents' funeral, Paula made a full confession. In that confession, Paula stated that during the months that she worked for McManus, he always talked about the murders. He kept talking about it all the time until it happened. On the day of the murders, he called and told me that the man had called him Friday and said, three is a crowd. I knew what he meant because he had told me in the past that it might not matter if I and Chad were there. He was afraid something would happen to me and he couldn't get any insurance money. She was arrested along with McManus. The two were then indicted by a grand jury on July 29, 1976. But both were let out on bonds of $50,000. Also arrested around this time were Ben Tabor, described as a flim-flam man, better known today as a con man, who bilked Vernon McManus and Vernon Olney of $12,000. Tabor said he was hired by Olney and McManus to find a professional hit man to kill the controls. Vernon Olney, McManus's business partner at the Plywood Company, was arrested after investigators found telephone company records showing calls from Olney's residence to Tabor eight times during a two-month period. Two on April 14th. Two on April 16th. Two on April 18th. One on May 8th. And one on May 15th. McManus and Only were both indicted on charges of conspiracy in the case of $12,000, 
an alleged murder for hire payments. This was on top of McManus's capital murder charges. Paula was set to go on trial January 10th, 1977, but only for the murder of her mother, Mary, as the prosecution won a request to have the cases separated. After jury selection was finalized on January 23rd, testimony was to start the next day. But in a shocking change of events, Paula decided to change her plea from not guilty to guilty of first-degree murder in exchange for her testimony against Vernon McManus. She cried as the judge read the penalty for her guilty plea, which would be no less than five years and no more than 99 years in prison. But her sentencing would have to wait until after McManus's trial, set to start March 7, 1977. However, the weekend before the start date, McManus's car was found abandoned on Golf Pump Road near Barrett Station. Inside, blood was smeared everywhere. Officials believed that there was no foul play actually happening, and this was just a setup by McManus to make it seem like he had been killed or injured. And had he disappeared just one day later, his trial could have started as scheduled. But at that time, under Texas law, the defendant must be present to enter a plea on the first day of testimony. So his trial had to be pushed back two weeks. He was later found by authorities in Florida. This led to the arrest of Betty Jean Plaskill, a convenience store employee accused of providing McManus with a car and a fake driver's license used in his flight to Jacksonville, Florida. McManus went on trial in May 1977, he was convicted and sentenced to death. One hour later, Paula Cantrell, Derese, was sentenced to life in prison. In October of that same year, McManus gave an interview from jail. This is a portion of that interview. I've never won or lost anything without a fight, but I'm going to fight this until the day I die. They had no murder case against me. People put me on trial for adultery and drunkenness. I never paid anyone any money to kill anyone, and I never killed anyone. I never talked to Paula about her parents or any killings. But I don't want to get into a lying contest with her. With what I have learned about the law and the way things are done, of course I am bitter. I had to bite my tongue many times during the trial, but what could I do? They, the judge and jury, had me guilty before we even began. People are ignorant of their rights, and when the authorities tell them to do something, they don't know they can do any differently. I answered every dang question the Baytown police asked me for 23 days while I was in jail. They didn't even tell me why I was arrested. I don't know who killed the Cantrells, and I told them that. When asked if he would assist in his defense and testify if the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals grants him a new trial, he said, Heck yes. I've read the book of reversible errors in Texas criminal cases a hundred times and have been studying the law. I'll also probably cross-examine some of the witnesses. People don't value their freedom until they take it away from you. 
You don't think a thing about being able to leave here and go to your car and go home. I try to stay busy. I'm writing a book and studying the law. Vernon Onley had his first trial on charges of conspiracy in 1978, but that ended in a hung jury. His second trial was in 1981, which ended in a mistrial with the jury split 6-6. to I could not find any evidence of him being charged again, or of going on trial again. Also in 1981, a scandal brought about charges against Don Smith, who was McManus's lawyer in his murder trial, and Regina McManus, his ex-wife. Don Smith and Regina McManus were indicted on charges of bigamy. Regina was Vernon's wife, who began dating his lawyer during the murder trial. The couple were divorcing, but bigamy charges were brought up because Don Smith and Regina McManus married in Nevada six months before the McManus divorce was final. The indictment alleged the pair lived together under the appearance of being married on December 15, 1978, two months before the marriage was dissolved. The trial was set for December 14, 1981, and if convicted, it would be punishable by a prison term of two to ten years and a maximum fine of $5,000 as bigamy is a third-degree felony in Texas. I was unable to find a conclusion to this bigamy charge against the couple. McManus also argued in his appeals that he did not receive a fair trial because at that time his wife, Regina, was romantically involved with his attorney, Don Smith. But in December 1979, McManus's appeals were denied. A shocking twist came about in 1983, when a federal judge overturned McManus's death penalty conviction. This was due to the judge finding that a juror who had expressed reservations about the death penalty was improperly excused. This juror was Reed Blanchard, who had told attorneys that he thought the possibility of imposing the death penalty could affect him during deliberations. If you remember, we discussed this topic in part two of the Ronald O'Brien case in which a juror could not be dismissed because of their opposition to the death penalty. The prosecution decided to try McManus again, and his retrial was set for January 27, 1987. Unfortunately, both Paula and Tabor, who testified at McManus's first trial, refused to testify in the second trial. The prosecution tried to get a thousand pages of their testimony entered into evidence, but the judge ruled that prosecutors could not use this in place of Paula's testimony because she was cross-examined by defense lawyer Don Smith, who the judge said had a questionable conflict of interest, stating Smith's defense of McManus was ineffective because of the nature of his relationship with his client's wife. With that, District Judge Johnny Colinda dismissed capital murder charges against Vernon McManus, stating that prosecutors had insufficient evidence to try him for the slayings of Paul and Mary Cantrell. Vernon McManus, now 43, spent 10 years in prison and became a free man in 1987. 
After the charges were dropped, he was quoted as saying, I thank the Lord. It's all over with. I want to say a huge thank you to LawJustia.com, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a male murderer from the year 1976. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.